Welcome to Women That Make Science Fiction. I'm Amy Chambers. And I'm Lyle Skeens. And we're your hosts until they replace us with robots. Or men. Uh, so today we wanted to sort of pull off the regular schedule a little bit and um, have a guest because uh, it's quarantine and we have added someone to our bubble who happens to be a specialist in uh, women's science fiction fandom. So it would seem silly not to incorporate them. So um, today we're joined by um, Katie Hefner. She's a current PhD student at the University of Kent, supervised by the wonderful Professor Charlotte Slay. Um, her research examines women's participation in fandom in the early 20th century. Um, she received a master's in library and information science with a concentration on digital archives at the University of Iowa in 2019 and her honours thesis for her bachelor's degree in English literature explores how fandom practices such as fanzines can be used within the classroom. So yes we have another American um, so uh, Lyle you're going to have to southern it up and <laughs> Katie's going to have to cally it up because our beautiful thing where the British person uh, is easy to distinguish from the American is ruined when you've got two Americans. Yeah. Well, so welcome, I can, Katie. I can slide on into that Matthew McConaughey drawl. How about? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Katie. Hi. I may say things like "totally rad," "that's awesome," and other California slang. That's just because um, I was born and raised in Long Beach, California, and everything is totally rad tubular yep <laughs> god <laughs> so um we wanted to take the opportunity to talk about our fun experiences um, and we have talked about them a little bit as part of this and the reasons that we chose to do the project um having to do with this idea of exclusion within science fiction feeling underrepresented or misrepresented because of the way that a lot of science fiction is created and um expressed i guess um, so I've talked about the fact that I get every year, um, usually a male student who comes and checks that I know a particular show or a particular director um, in the sort of like, you've probably not heard of them because they're quite uh, niche. Um, so <laughs> uh, they well actually you every year because uh, someone did it with me um, on Neon Genesis Evangelion, which was just about to go on Netflix, uh, and I could school them on that, and I was really pl pleased with myself. And they were like, "I haven't seen all of it actually." Ha! <laughs> well, I mean, too, and I, when I started teaching, uh, you and I got together and decided that um, I am not good at dressing myself uh, in the same way that you are, and so uh, we decided. That doesn't sound weird. That's fine. <laughs> We decided that a good um, uniform, a teaching uniform for me, would be um, basically fan t-shirts of some sort uh, of the T-Fury, uh, what is it, QWERTY ilk uh, with a cardigan or a blazer or something. And that you look good I in a blazer. Really well. I, I miss the blazers, yeah. You I look good in blazers. Yeah. Oh, there was one that you had, which was um, a frog one where the eyes were weirdly positioned. And that's all I remember. <laughs> but I didn't understand the reference, but I remember that the frog's eyes were very specific. <laughs> okay. So um, do we think as a group uh, that our experiences are different from men who are engaged and interested in science fiction? Um, or is this a question that I'm pulling from the stereotype of the fan that has been circulated in popular culture. 
um, my fandom and my experiences with science fiction are very much connected to my father. So I, ha I don't know if I have a different experience and, or, or not. And so I'd be interested to know um, what your fun experiences are, Katie. And <laughs> if you think you get challenged in a different way to men, or if I'm just reading into that because of the existing stereotype and you're going to speak into the mic. <laughs> yeah, so um, I think one of my earliest, um, well, okay, so let me backtrack. I was privileged to um, present at WizCon, which is um, the feminist science fiction um, convention. It's like one of the longest um, running um, feminist science fiction conventions in America. And I presented a paper on a panel um, and basically uh, after I presented the paper about uh, women in fandom, I had a uh, pretty big name uh, fan who happens to be a dude ask me, are you a fan? Um, so it was like all of the research that I had done was sort of like, um, not necessarily undercut, but it, it was focused on the my positionality as a fan. And I think that if I were a dude or if I were more masculine presenting, I don't necessarily think I would have gotten um, that sort of like question or, or interrogation. Uh, oftentimes, like beyond like the academic, the ACAFAN um, sphere, I um, will encounter dudes um, who basically want to uh, tell me about science fiction, who want to school me about science fiction, and it's almost like a, um, a little competitive game for them. Like, um, and it's hard because there are um, so many different, oh, it's, it's difficult because um, especially like with YouTube and um, folks like um, engaging in amateur media, there are a lot of um, representations of uh, sexist rep sexism within um, online uh, spaces. So one of the YouTube videos that I just recently saw was it's like a dude who has his girlfriend um, basically narrate um, all of the Star Trek movies and um, she's not that familiar with Star Trek. I'm sorry, not Star Trek, Star Wars. Um, and yeah, uh, damn it, that was What you can't beat. see here is me and Lyle eye-rolling to the gods. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this were like, oh my God, yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> what sexism on the internet you don't yeah. say. No! Yeah, yeah. I mean, my... I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, we do the same thing though with, with one of my students who's never seen Star Wars and he's, we want to get him really drunk and do a podcast with him explaining Star Wars to us because it's hilarious. Um, but yeah, I but do think that's, that's stereotypical. It's different. I think in yeah. that context, you're not connecting it to his gender has got nothing to do no. with his failed fan knowledge. No, exactly. <laughs> in this showcasing of of women i can and how fake they... my star wars stuff i like and you I do. Can fake it real good because i am not a star wars fan and well so i will take trek baby, over baby, wars baby any day baby, baby, yoda. baby yoda i love baby yoda and then the <laughs> boys in my class were like but uh it's not really canon and i don't really feel that it's not oh my god if we could just take that word canon out of <laughs> Our entire lexicon. I hate that word. But I mean, my, it's actually kind of funny because the way that I got into science fiction as, you know, I was a big reader as a kid. Um, neither one of my parents uh, really read much science fiction, 
but um, I we read a lot of horror. I read a lot of horror growing up as a kid. Stories of Lyle's inappropriate childhood reading and viewing, part six. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my two favorite authors were Stephen King and Dean Koontz. So I read so much of that, but obviously we know that a lot of horror crosses the boundary between scary and science fiction. And I do remember that my favorites of my favorite favorite was Dean Koontz. I liked Stephen King, but um, Dean Koontz was my favorite, but he very often slips into science fiction. There's often aliens uh, or it's some sort of medical experiment. My favorite one was the ti- his time travel uh, book where uh, basically the Nazis invent time travel um, but instead of going alternate history with it um, he, it's a love story which Aww. is a little bit odd for a for a, a horror writer basically this this Nazi gets sent forward um, they're sent forward in time to try to uh, figure out what's going to happen and what their strategies are going to be to win the war and he meets someone and falls in love with her and basically uses his time travel capabilities to protect her throughout her life, to protect her from uh, being attacked or from an accident or things like that. Or from so, Nazis. <laughs> well, yes, but uh, that's, his, uh, that's his secondary agenda. Um, so, so that was my favorite book growing up, but I never connected it to science fiction. I actually didn't really get into science fiction um, in terms of seeing myself that way. Uh, until I dated this one particular guy in my twenties, um, and and then it was it was honestly it was Farscape. Farscape was, whoo, because Ben Browder and I just I loved it and I loved all of Farscape, and actually that served me well because then it was Farscape and Stargate and all that kind of sci-fi channel. It was stuff. a good era for that sort of oh, like, oh my god, opera. it was so good, yeah. And then when I met my, who's now my husband, that was actually what we bonded over. That was, we met online, as you do. And one of his questions was, what what was your favorite movie this year? And I said, Serenity, because Firefly. Obviously. It was that year. And we just immediately went, boom, that was, it was okay. You're my, you're my person, obviously. And that's how we spent all of our date nights was watching sci-fi stuff. Um... And so, sadly, I did come into it uh, via men and sort of connecting that way. Um, uh, and so I can, I can see where that stereotypical, you know, my parents aren't sort of cultural giants. They're, they're um, my dad's from working class background, agriculture farmers. My mom is too, but... Um, but just very mainstream tastes in terms of, of well educated, but not getting into yeah. the subgenres. Exactly, and so I saw science fiction growing up as a the same way that I saw comics growing up, which was those were for boys. Um, and so now, of course, I'm like, yay, science fiction, uh, and it's and for so long there there weren't girls in science fiction. There weren't female leads and that sort of thing so that's why I remember Buffy as such a big changing point for me and I think I I was always aware of science fiction my dad had it in the house and we had gay uh, video games that were science fiction and we had um 
various novels that I looked at and went, no. Um, I was just don't like was, novels. No, well, when I was a kid, I did. I read a lot of um, C.S. Lewis, and I was really mm. into rereading. And I, it's my rereading thing. I really, really loved *Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, so I just reread the *Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe* series over and over again. I was like, okay, I'll just start this again. It's like me and Shit's Creek at the present moment. I've started it, I've finished it four times, and I'm like, oh, what should I watch? I'll watch that again because it is very comforting and I like yep, it. Pretty much. Um, but I remember Buffy coming out and my dad being like, really wanted to watch it with me. And it became like part of our routine. And I would have been about 15, 16. I'm a little bit younger than Buffy would have been in the show. Um, so I was just the right age for it. And uh, me and my dad used to watch it together and then we watched other sci-fi stuff and then Battlestar Galactica came out while I was mm. sort of high school uh university level um and since then that's that's the thing that is our bond if like there's a little in the conversation I know that I can ask my dad about what he's watching and I'll get sort of an interesting insight into whatever and we send each other um recommendations I'm building up to watching Warrior Nun at the present moment it's good you'll like it okay because my dad was like you'll like it and i was like it's called warrior nun i just i was uh, it was called buffy the vampire slayer it was the 90s (laughs) (laughs) warrior nun good watch it okay i will watch it I finished uh, all of my women ones now. So I finished all my women ones. I finished all my women created science fiction. All negative three of them. I know. I was uh, holding off on Emergence and I watched the end of Emergence, um, which was sad. And I was like, but it had no, that doesn't translate to a podcast. I'm like, I'm doing sad face and you can't see it because this (laughs) is a podcast, Amy. Um, And so I watched the end of that this week and I watched the end of the second season of Roswell, New Mexico. Yeah, you're saying it correctly. It sounds so stupid though. (laughs) Also, Um, I watched the episode where they go to Texas for the faith healer. That's not Texas. And the bar (laughs) that they go to is about 40 minutes from my mom's house. Welcome to every show that ever says it's in London. When it was a Supergirl, Supergirl had Manchester Black. Um, as one of the villains and they kept going to a pub in Manchester and I'm like a that's not a British pub and b that's definitely not Manchester <laughs> like the aerial shots I was like that's not even Britain nope, okay not even not even a little no okay <laughs> um yeah so I I recognize that being we come from a tiny country and you know exactly which area you're in if they're filming the wrong thing you're like that's not no um is that when manchester gets to pretend to be new york in the 1940s for captain america cute then but i do quite like sitting in captain america going oh look it's manchester um (laughs) so um some of this is maybe to do with what we've been talking about broderick's megatext this idea of science fiction being part of a singular text distinct singular idea and some of this maybe fits into this idea of fandoms are we supposed to as fans as a science fiction fan are you supposed to know everything is that an unfair thing to levy against people yes it is um but why is this idea that if you're a science fiction fan you have to have read particular texts you have to have engaged with particular things it's not about necessarily the enjoyment of one particular element but rather an engagement with that mega text 
so it's the, oh my God, you don't know, whatever. Uh, and you're like, no, I have never heard of that, but I really enjoy the thing that I do enjoy. Well, historically, um, science fiction fans have um, often thought of themselves as um, having superior intelligence um, because they read and write science fiction and therefore they're smarter than everybody else. Um, and I think that's sort of where this competitive knowledge kind of comes from where it's like oh bro you don't know xyz well like you're not even really a fan so um we can trace this back um this sort of like uh feeling or perception that science fiction fans are um have like superior knowledge um to a.e van voigt's um book uh slan and there's a um in this novel he basically um says like there's a superhuman um that that is built who has like you know incredible um intellectual power and um from this novel um fans began to use this term they coined this term fans are slans meaning that like fans are like these super this is a very smart poorly um, question in, let me stop i believe and, in you um, hyper intelligent <laughs> you can do it form of, <laughs> of humanity so the sort of competitive knowledge that goes on within fandom um at times can be incredibly uh contentious when you factor in gender relations um when you factor in race and um class and all these other sorts of aspects um in, within it um and i think that um a lot of this comes from either trying to one up like one up you know somebody another thing is like about um just like this great propensity to share information to share cultural heritage of fans to share text and be like well dude why the f haven't you like read this this is a great novel for you to have read um so i think that's that's my that's that's kind of how I would answer that. I think I you know. get it in a lot of specialist areas. We definitely get it in academia. Like, how do you not know the theories of so-and-so back to front, upside down, and, and have an opinion on it? Um, it has a lot to do with gatekeeping and gatekeeping yeah. to your particular community. Uh, Lyle and I wrote our, my first article, uh, which was on Scott Pilgrim versus the world um, and interactive um, media. Um, and the reviewer two comments we had someone who basically he went i believe that you have misread stuart hall's reading of whatever it was and um getting to write back dear reviewer two thank you very much for your comment we believe you have also misunderstood the work <laughs> of stuart hall um and the reviewers were because the editor had stepped in and basically said you know don't worry about this comment but we sort of wanted to respond to it and it's this sort of idea of of taking down a scholar because you've misread or you've not properly read a particular piece of um critical work so I, I think there's that gatekeeping fits along a lot of the stuff that we do and i think if science as science fiction has become more academic because it's it's one of the later areas to to be entered into uh academic research um because of its the narratives around it not being serious even though you've got this history within the fandom of science fiction being for the intelligent people and this sort of like tension between those two sides 
I mean, there's there's tons of gendered stuff in in fan cultures anyway. I mean, if we we look at different types of fandoms, there's this bizarre um, feminization of media fandoms where uh, you're you're less than a man if you're you know right. The the typical Star Trek uh, fan is this you know basement dweller. You're you can't throw a football sort of big bang theory right you're all sheldon's and leonard's um whereas sports fandom if you're a fan of a random football team then you're more manly right you're masculine you proper fandom uh and then for women you know try try entering into that science fiction fandom try entering into that media fandom uh, that men, you know, those already minimized men, the basement dweller stereotype. And so you get this sort of this incel reaction to women entering their fandom where they were like, oh, this was a space where I could rule and I could, you know, show off how smart I am, where I, I dominated, where, you know, I was always picked last for dodgeball, but I know a lot about Star Trek. And when I go to the, the conventions, I'm badass because I have Spock ears or whatever it is. Um, but you're a woman. Uh, please don't please don't enter my, my realm. And so they're almost more hateful toward women entering that realm because, you know, it was something where they could feel superior. Which is total bull. Um, <laughs> sorry, I got you not flaring next to me. Yeah, horrible. I'm just trying so hard. I should have watched like um, that one Fox animation movie because he um, uses all of the... Um, I forget the fantastic Mr. Fox and all of the um, the profanity um, words that he gets to use. We we curse in sci-fi. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> so I mean, so what you're, I yeah. So what you're pointing towards and what you're what you're claiming is really important. I think um, about the tensions within fandom. You look at like the end of the 1950s um, and the beginning of like um, media fandom in the 60s, and there is this tension between um, like groups, broad two broad groups of fans. So you have literary fandom, and these are the diehard pulp readers. These are the um, ace doublebacks. Like these are the folks that like were more um, fans of textual however broadly represented science fiction. And then you have media fandom, which is supposedly a fan organization or, or a group of fan collectives that are um, highly feminized, that are less than the literary fans. But um, historically, like you going through um, the documents and the fanzines, it's not necessarily true. There are a lot of women fans in the 1950s who published fanzines, who ran conventions, who did all sorts of other fan works that later progressed, that's kept with science fiction and later went into media fandom, you know, with Star Trek. And I think it's incredibly sexist um, and misogynistic um, to think that media fandom um, is off media fandom is a um is less than because of its um its um large representation of women within media fandom looking at the ways that um especially in early media fandom there's a fanzine called spockanalia it was one of the first star trek fanzines to be published 
predominantly the works within this fanzine are um, from women. And there's definitely a scientific literacy that they're exploring where they're thinking about what does Spock's heart look like? Spock's heart looks like it has six chambers and this is how the, um, the blood runs through um, Spock's body. Um, they're looking at um, eco, eco terrains of like the Vulcan planet um, and they're also like, you know, so there, there definitely is a scientific literacy that they're, that they're working towards. This isn't just, um, gushing quote unquote hysteria of women fans going crazy for, um, Kirk and Spock. Um, but I could tell you a little bit more about that later on the x-rated version of that <laughs> well that's that's the kirk and spock are the originators of, of slash fiction right that's where we we even get the term was that it was was kirk slash spock but i mean i i, I totally um yeah absolutely what you're saying and we see that legitimization of fandom um in authorship of of fan works so women have been participating in the way that you, you talk about in, in fan contributions since the invention of anything, really, since the invention of, of anything that you could put your name to as an authority. So printing press age, uh, where, you know, lots of novels that were written uh, in the early publishing stages were women writing fan fiction, basically responding to one another. Um, and, and obviously that tradition continues in, in what Abigail Derecho calls archontic text, which I love that term because it takes away this notion of fanfic as, as illegitimate or as derogatory and says, no, it's actually a new kind of uh, literature. It's a new kind of, of narrative in that it's, it's all one piece. It's a story world in which people build on one another. And so it's this, I always picture it like this, um, you've got this this block building at the bottom, which is the original text. Um, obviously, it's got a foundation of all the mythology and culture and everything else that it draws from, but you've got this sort of bottleneck in that original text. And then people just build on it like like a shanty town or, or like, you know, where you keep building shipping containers. I love those settlements where people just keep building lean-tos and shipping containers and adding. And, um, and I love that, but it's so much of that sort of stuff where it can be legitimized it becomes like very much male dominated so uh if we think about industries like film and tv where your calling card as a writer so if you want to get into tv writing you write fan fiction if i want to go join the the writer's room on big bang theory i have to write an episode I have to have a script in hand, an episode of The Big Bang Theory. Well, that's fan fiction, but it's legitimized because it's professional practice and it's by and large, it's men practicing it. Uh, and, and, you know, various other things. Um, and so, but women, because women do zines and women do fanfiction.net and AO3 and this sort of thing, it's, well, that's, you know, it's derivative, it's illegitimate, you're copying, you're stealing someone's copyright so much to the point that they internalize it themselves and say, my work, I'm not really a writer. And it's absolute bollocks. Absolutely they're writers. Absolutely they're creators. But there's this bizarre, sexist, misogynist, cultural thing that says, no, you're not. 
to build that world and have that narrative verisimilitude to create that sort of connection to an existing fan world as a skill in its own right absolutely and a lot of i mean as you're saying like not necessarily big bang theory but any science fiction uh ongoing science fiction series if you're coming in to write a episode you need to almost have that sort of connection to the narrative to the the fan expectations um you need to have that historical grounding in that particular text neil gaiman coming in to write what ends up being a really important episode in doctor who in terms of the introduction of the tardis as a as a physical woman um that is such a beautifully written episode in terms of engaging with his imagination around that non-embodied traditionally non-embodied character it's it's a space in a box and a thing rather than a person but the fact that she is that i now refer to the tardis as she and i automatically have that characterization now um of what the tardis is and when she misbehaves now in later episodes i link back to that particular episode but for that episode to work gaiman had to have had knowledge of and understanding of that particular show that particular fandom um in order to be able to create a character that fits neatly within um, the existing world. So fan practices then are really important to long-term running um, shows where people are coming in and out and not necessarily writing the whole thing exclusively. You tend to have writer's rooms, you tend to have writers that come in and do one-off episodes or direct one-off episodes and you still need to have that connection to um that particular franchise or that that particular show yeah and i think the communal writing practices are definitely something that like you see like early on within fandoms like looking at um so something that was popular like in the um 40s and 50s is is this idea of round robins started by Mm. fans where you know, and this goes back to, um, you know, Amy's um, question on, about megatext. Are fans supposed to be fans of everything? Are they supposed to be scholars and knowledgeable of all, all the finer prints? Um, I think when you're working within, like, um, communal writing practices, such as around Robin, where you write a little bit, you send it to your friend, that friend carries on that narrative, that, car- that friend will see, like, you know, the, the specific um, fine points of that text and, and carry it on and build and build and build. You have um, basically communal storytelling practices that fans are engaged in. And you also have communi- communal ownership in a certain way, right? Because you don't want to get sued for it. Um, this is like, we're just doing this for fun. We're not selling, selling our narratives um, because of like, the weird legal infringement stuff that happens. Um, oh yeah, I could go all day on that because I think it's, I mean, it's interesting because I think that's gonna change. I think it has to change. I mean, we saw it with uh, she who shall not be named because she's a transphobe. Um, but with uh, that particular franchise where initially the publisher said, uh, said, no, no fan fiction. You can't do fan fiction. We own this, lock it down. And that was a bad move uh, when you open the world back up to fan fiction and say you're not going to go after everybody for every fan fiction. Because what you're doing when you have fan fiction writers is they are your 
ultimate fans, right? They're so invested in it that they're creating more of it. It's not just, oh, I enjoy that. And then I put the book on the shelf. They're creating more of it. They're actually creating more fans who are going to go and purchase the thing. So we're seeing a lot more of that. And I think that the legitimization of this type of, of writing, this archontic fiction, or what I'm calling it on Wonderbox, which is cooperative fiction, um, we're seeing authors who say, why shouldn't you be able to do this? You created this. Hugh Howie, who wrote the Wool series, uh, you know, he's quoted as, as telling a fan, you know, a fan has sent him a piece that they wrote based on Wool and said, what do you think? And he says, this is great. Are you selling this? And the fan goes, well, no, I can't. It, it, I don't, you know, legally I can't because it's yours. And Hugh Howie said, it absolutely is not mine. And actually Hugh Howie's right. Copyright, when it comes down to it, uh, this is the reason why filing off the serial numbers actually is legal because, uh, because copyright, when those cases come to court, they actually analyze it word for word and they go actually, you know, okay, we can see that this paragraph is absolutely word for word uh, what appeared in your text. So yes, and it comes down to like, it has to be like 75% copied or something for them to actually hold up those copyrights. So it's more that, you know, she who not, shall not be named has the money and the power to make your life miserable if she really wants to, whether or not she wins is uh, another question. Um, but actually, most of what these fans are doing is absolutely legitimate writing. E.L. James is, um, you know, I don't know if she's a billionaire yet or not, but multimillionaire um, because it's legitimate. Uh, and so this self-policing um, is, is really this internalization of this cultural uh, misogyny and, and derision that is misplaced because frankly most of what we write is fan fiction so what i'd like to ask is a a question to both uh lyle and katie about self-publishing and thinking about how um we use uh this idea of publishing uh outside of a particular system and what are the issues with publishing within uh, the structures, the systemic issues that come with publishing within um, the canonical science fiction structure. So both literature, zines, because zines have zines are self-published, right? Yes. So and um, you set up Wonderbox as a publishing um, company. In terms of thinking around uh, creating spaces for publications that don't necessarily fit within. Um, the corporate publishing industry. So I'd just like you to, I'm just going to sit back and let you talk about this because I don't know anything about it. Yeah, I'd love to hear about the zines from Katie because I think Katie knows a lot more about zines than I do. Oh my gosh. So you guys just like uh, cut me off when, um, because, all right, cool. I'll just. (laughs) Welcome to us. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So um, we really see, so zines, fanzines, so, okay, it's okay, Katie, calm down. You're going to talk about this. Don't fangirl <laughs> about zines too much, okay? And this episode is literally called fangirling. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we see fanzines emerge in the 1930s, um, and they are um, created in direct response to pulp magazines. So in the early 20th century, you have um, hobbyist 
pulp magazines that are being um, printed and published um, by different um, editors. One of the most famous editors is uh, Hugo Gernsback, and uh, he uh, he was the editor of um, some uh, science and radio enthusiast pulp magazines. And the reason why they were called pulp magazines is because um, their covers were basically made out of, of pulp paper. So they were kind of flaky, cheap. The covers are um, really flashy and engaging. And they had all of these like wonderful images um, of, of uh, the future. So in 1926, Hugo Gernsback publishes amazing stories. And within this pulp magazine, um, there's basically a short story from Wells, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, and Byrne. And he, um, he tells the um, community of readers, um, th there's going to be a new kind of story. There's going to be a new kind of story that mixes science and fiction together. How am I going to name this? Scientific fiction just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I have to say that in a presentation, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like no. Phenomenology. <laughs> so he, in the early pulp magazines, he started um, basically a, a reader's um, or letters to the editor column. And he published um, these people's um, letters and people who um, he also included their addresses in them as well. So people were psyched about these early pulp magazines. Um, they started writing letters to one another um, to critique the works that were in these pulp magazines. And then um, they began to reproduce the letters that they're sending am amongst each other, um, collate the letters, and create these. Um, these independent amateur publications that was basically reader response criticism and talking about like this emerging new genre called scientific fiction. <laughs> <laughs> the more you say it, the more it feels like it's like, whoop, <laughs> So in 1930, we see um, one of the most, er, one of the earliest fanzines being published. Um, and at this point, it wasn't called a fanzine. It was called a fan mag. Um, and uh, <laughs> more excellent terms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was um, called The Comet, um, and Ray Palmer was part of it. And it was basically a science correspondence club um, in the Midwest, and um, it was on uh, a form of printing. Um, they used the forms of printing that they used for fanzines were hectograph, which is basically a jelly mold that you could concoct in your kitchen, um, which was basically a gelatin um, and some other cool stuff. And then you would um, get a, a transfer sheet of paper you would stencil out your images or write it um, you know, on a typewriter. You'd pull off the image. You would imprint it into this jelly mold for a little bit. The jelly mold would absorb the ink and then you would basically print your um, fanzine, the one page of your fanzine from this jelly mold. So when you look at hectograph fanzines <laughs> that <Little> have... <gasps> <laughs> I love this so much because <laughs> they're doing science while printing science fiction. I said it and oh, this is brilliant. I love yeah. it so much. 
So with and jelly. With yeah. <laughs> and the um the interesting thing is that you can still use this printing process today. Um, just like as a side note, um, I was able to be a guest speaker for a um, science fiction course for a master's back in Iowa. And um, I came in with a jelly mold and I um, was like, all right, graduate students, we're going to make a fanzine from the 1930s. And all of the graduate students <laughs> were like, what the f i don't want to do this how do i do this this is scary and it's like i would have peed my pants with excitement <laughs> finding a use for jelly i hate jelly <laughs> jelly now has a purpose <laughs> i hate jelly <laughs> jelly and ice cream literally the worst thing ever <laughs> why would you do that that's wrong anyway oh, oh no we agree on something that's fine <laughs> what's the saying if it doesn't shake it's jam or something jelly um that must be jelly because jam don't shake is something that yeah i've heard <laughs> so i don't know if there's any shaking of hectograph pans <laughs> twerk the jelly <laughs> Ooh, i almost got a cry laugh out of amy on that one <laughs> So you see people publishing um, these these fanzines um, or these fan mags. Um, they're talking about all kinds of different um, really cool things. Um, and uh, oftentimes, like in uh, what I've when I've studied like um, the the fan magazines, is that um, it was women behind the printing press cranking the mimeograph, cutting out the stencils working to collate all of the information, um, but it was men who were editors. Um, one of the um, historic figures that I'm looking at um, is Myrtle Douglas, who- um, A wonderful name. Oh, I fangirl over her. I just, yeah. She, she had was, to have purple hair. She was an Esperanto enthusiast and believed <laughs> that Esperanto could unite the world that like, we could all just like speak Esperanto and get along. So she published Bless. Esperanto fanzines and she also published um, fanzines for the Los Angeles Science Fiction uh, Society, which um, had like a lot of um, popular folks like Forrest Ackerman and a lot of Los Angeles based science fiction dudes um, and ladies. Um, so yeah, so fan magazines. Um, they changed the name from fan mags because it was like too Freudian. Like you say fan mags too many times mm -hmm. and yeah. there's just like something <laughs> sexy comes over you. So <laughs> I'm going to try that later on tonight. Fan mags, fan mags. Fan mags. mags. Why is this happening to me? <laughs> I'm getting the vapors. <laughs> so they changed it um Chauvinet, um he changed it in 1940 he had a passionate plea change it to fanzines i'm tired of fan mags um and yeah so there are a ton of fanzines out there um and they focus on everything from being um dedication fanzines um as we see like in media um fandom like dedication fanzines to ahura um 
to Spock. Um, we see fanzines in the uh, 1930s, 40s, and 50s as being um, these um, tools of information sharing, of knowledge building within um, fan communities, of talking about, hey, I saw this great movie at the first Worldcon. It's called Metropolis. Have you seen that? Do you know about this movie? Like, you know, so yeah. But it's sharing with joy rather than sharing with judgment. Oh yeah. Oh, hello. Absolutely. Hello, catchphrase. Sharing with joy, not with judgment. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it is that it's an excitement where you're collecting you and um yeah it, it, it's interesting because it, it has a different frame to it in terms of where that knowledge is being placed how it's being created that handmade um that's part of the texture of it, is that it looks a particular way it's distinct from the pulp magazines it's distinct from that sort of high highly con what's the word what how bleh, like the covers of amazing um stories they're really stories. pardon um it's like that bricolage of of bits and things and excitement and tone and they were always colorful and uh full of of wonder and and detail and yeah joy i think is is a good word and i think that that continues through media fandom and through internet fandom uh with with current practices because as we get to media fandom and i always talk about this when i talk about uh writing and self-publishing is that uh i was of the perfect age uh to totally miss to totally fall between the cracks of the generations of fandoms um so for media fandom that starts in the in the 60s and 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 revolves a lot around star trek initially and then and then progresses to just be everything um as it is now but uh it was about sort of this being able to go to conventions right so conventions were the big thing you didn't have the internet you didn't have a way to connect but you you could go to a convention when they when they were first starting and you would meet other fans well it, by and large, as that was going on, you needed to be an adult. You needed to be either someone in your family needed to be involved in conventions or you needed to be an adult because that, you know, it was money, it was travel, it was going to the thing. And so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a lot of kids and teenagers doing that. Uh, and they would go to the conventions and they would, they would write songs and, and talk about a sensual word for that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And what the filk are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to say it. It sounds dirty. Filking sounds dirty. Um so uh, you know, songs and and they would edit, they would they would tape. There was this massive thing where they would tape the episodes and then re-edit them in different ways to build different stories. So that's the origins of mashups. Um and uh and then they would be bidding me. <laughs> I love it. We're gonna have to have a list of the puns. Um, but uh, so, and then the zine culture continues, and it it is absolutely this parallel of uh, literary journal publishing, where you have this editor who says, "Yeah, collect all the stories, send them to me. 
I will put them together. And a lot of times you have this editorship where, where she would, I'm going to say she, because by the time we get into media fandom, it's really women uh, spearheading this. Um, the men were doing sort of a lot of more of the technical stuff. I think it was a lot more men doing the, the video editing and things like that. But the women really took over the scenes and, um, and were editing. They were helping one another to write better stories. They were saying, you know, you did this, next time do this. And so you get this uh, lovely community helping each other write and you know because they'd already internalized this you know we we're not allowed to do this it's copyrighted yada 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 the only thing they got was was payment for the postage to send you their zine uh and for the supplies right so you would pay for the stamp essentially uh and and then as it moves online um and so i was too young to be able to go to conventions like that and as i said before my parents weren't science fiction nerds at all uh, and so completely I really missed can't out imagine on... your parents at a, no. a science fiction. <laughs> oh my God, so weird. Um, and then, uh, and then I was a bit too, I'd already gotten entrenched. Like I went to, I had already started taking creative writing classes when I was about 15 and this internalization of no fan fiction, it's not legitimate. Science fiction is not legitimate because God forbid you put anything with an alien in literature or future scenes or whatever <laughs> oh my god don't even get me started on that um i will workshop bullshit um and so uh i'd already internalized this idea that fan fiction is bad and so i didn't participate in it. and yet if you look at my the first stuff that i wrote which like my fourth grade teacher like typed it up and printed it and put it in a little book for me um and the first short story that i ever published both are fan fiction uh but of course don't call it that because that's rude but at the time you know i was just writing uh and so i missed both those you know that the the media fandom and the internet fandom just i fell between um but the really interesting thing is that all of those traditions of community writing writing to one another writing as discourse writing as filling in the gaps writing as response and helping one another with beta readers and sharing and having this this joy in a story you know everybody talks about oh fan fiction it's such crappy writing well that's not true it's just that it's all out there so you're seeing the good as well as the bad and there's always bad, but for the most part, we don't see it because someone's a gatekeeper and they don't publish it. Well, fan fiction is out there. Um, and then also some of- We definitely of... publish some dreadful, uh, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of dreadful publishing. Well, yeah. Uh, frosting and... on the man cake, always <laughs> my Frost, absolute- Frosting on the hunk cake. Hunk cake, sorry. Yes. That was in my a legitimately favorite one. In a traditionally royalty published book, that was the worst. Um, so, uh, but now you've distracted me Sorry. oh no i was gonna say um but they they also forget that m many many fan writers aren't writing to be published that's not their goal their goal isn't to win the man booker prize their goal is to to write this scene or to respond to a joke that someone else posted or to to write this quick little thing or whatever it is and they're their goals may be different and we're judging them on a, uh, a measurement scale that actually doesn't apply. They're doing something different. And I think there's not enough appreciation for that joy that they're getting out of it. 
and giving other people. But there's a there's a danger then also to this narrative of for fun or the for exposure sort of type narratives is that you end up with very talented people creating stuff that then is done for free that the the, the value of that particular mm-hmm. thing is is lost diminished yeah is diminished yeah because they don't and i get so many young writers into my classrooms who go and i say have you you know what do you like to write and they go well i'm not really a writer or well i've only written fan fiction and i have to be like it takes me ages to get them to go oh i am a writer i write fan fiction i've written millions of words you know and those writers you know they're more confident they're more able to get things done because they've already done it and without you know sort of judgment free and i really hate to see them go into creative writing classrooms where an instructor will say yeah you haven't really written you can't write fan fiction you can't write anything based on something else um and it took me a long time to get over that yeah Um, i mean and and it's just heartbreaking to see their little writerly confidence just absolutely crushed under this gross um patriarchal system of you must do what t.s Eliot says (laughs) you must do it's writing outside of the system so i my for me learning how to write and getting confidence in my writing was not necessarily through my academic writing but through the writing that i do for fun the blogging the um reviews the sort of more the stuff that is part of what i do as an academic but is really for my own enjoyment and that's where i learnt more of how to write how to write for different audiences how to be confident in my own writerly voice um and that has fed back into my academic writing and i I think we'd agree that my writing has got much better over the last sort of um, five or six years since i've been exploring writing through different um forms and i'm not i am a creative writer in the sense that i recognize the difference between different forms of writing um, but I don't get particular pleasure from writing um, fiction. Um, but my sort of, I really enjoy creative nonfiction. Um, and I read a lot of, of the creative nonfiction essayists, people who explore ideas through creative practice, but it's all, it's technically nonfiction. Um, and I'm not going to be able to remember the name of the author, but um, I've been reading a, um, series of essays called White Girls, and I'll put it in the mentions, um, which has got sort of these really interesting essays that that explores creatively the perspective of a particular um, historical figure or person. It's a sort of like merging of fiction and nonfiction. Um, mm-hmm. And I find that really engaging. When I say I don't read, I'm not particularly uh, engaged with novels and fiction. I do read essay creative nonfiction. I do read short stories it's just finding that different um space and, and where I'm interested in that Fair as enough. a writer mm-hmm. yeah and um, people going but where's the where's the benefit to your career where's the benefit to you financially oh God, for this question. <laughs> um and that becomes then an, an awkward <laughs> conversation why are you doing this if it if it doesn't go anywhere and I'm like but it does go somewhere because it all feeds into my own experience mm-hmm. my own um development as well as engaging with other people like i read your piece on whatever mm-hmm. this is what i think about it i mean it's part of that networking and yeah 
I get annoyed when people don't recognize right. the different and forms I think, of writing. You know, we look back at at um, sort of the the golden age of the dawn of study of literature, and I say every one of those words with um, a scowl on my face, uh, which is right the literary cafes and salons where every you know when you read about historically about writers and you start to realize that it's all this really gross um, cluster and incestuous like. Mary Shelley's married to Percy Shelley and her mom was Mary Wollstonecraft and they hung out with Lord Byron all the time and Percy Shelley you know was completely in love with John Keats and and you're like oh they're all just together all the time <laughs> they're just this, this gross web of grossness um and it's the same when you look at you know Nathaniel Hawthorne and uh, uh Moby Dick uh Herman Melville no. you know all they're all just it's all tangled together um, and, you know, where's that gone? Yada, yada. I think it's on AO3. I think it's on fanfiction.net. I think that's where our next generation of media, narrative, literature, I think that's where it's all coming from. Um, and it's, I think, by ignoring it and uh, saying that it's somehow lesser than is dumb because this is, I mean, look at, uh, you know, we complain about films. Oh, well, we've got to remakes and sequels or redos and, and, you know, sequels to books. Well, we always have had, we tell the same stories over and over. And especially once you get to a risk averse media and publishing world, uh, they want things with, with known uh, The audiences. safe pair of hands and exactly. the safe... Audience. And to know that they, that, you know, if I publish something in uh, the Star Trek universe, there's already this audience. Um, so, yeah, so we're going to have all this. Whereas we see these, these new attempts at franchises uh, fail a bit because they can't bring in the massive uh, Marvel audience or Star Trek audience or Star Wars. And so we're just getting endless Star Wars, which... We end up with media think, universes rather yeah, than exactly. individual narratives or stories. And, and these and, individual things just can't get a foothold, which there's a sadness to that because it means we lose, um, you know, Vagrant Queen and Emergence and, and these original pieces. Um, but I think they're going to come out somewhere else. And that may be indie games, digital fiction, fan fiction, somewhere else. Uh, and, and we'll see that revolution come around again. Yeah, the comics don't stop. They no. continue those narratives. They continue those stories. And, and they never stopped. So those narratives exist. You just have to explore Find them, them in different a, media. a different media. Yeah. Um, which is something I struggle with because of it if it goes into a literary uh space then i'm less likely to engage with that and i've sort of forgiven myself now for not having a complete knowledge of a particular franchise uh, because i don't in, it becomes less about my enjoyment of a particular franchise and more about making sure no one turns around and goes how did you not know blah 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 blah, blah. and i'm just like it's not worth the it, it should be about my enjoyment, not about having to fight off anyone else who yeah. doesn't think that I'm a good enough fan or I'm a good enough academic because I don't know what have you. Right. So. 
Yeah, how did you not know this before I told you? Well, guess what, asshole? I just found out because you told me. Thank you. Yeah. How kind. I started trying that. I did read on a tweet or Tumblr or something where they reframe the reaction of, oh my God, you haven't seen this thing. Oh my God, you've never seen this. How could you, you know, the, the reaction of people who've never seen Star Wars or who, you know, that sort of thing where it's like, oh my, to reframe it as, oh my gosh, I'm so excited for you. You get to experience this thing yeah. for the first time. Um, and I think that's taken, you know, for me, um, that's helped me to reframe things because I do that a lot, which is, you know, I went through a period where I watched every classic film I could get my hands on to the point where now if somebody's like, oh, I've never seen Casablanca. You know, it used to be, oh my God, how can you not have seen Casablanca? It's the greatest film ever made to, oh my gosh, it's so exciting. Let's, let's watch Casablanca because I'd love to see it again. And it'll be so exciting for you because it's so amazing. We don't do that with Citizen Kane. We go, I go, yeah, don't. Rosebud is the sled. It, 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 nobody wants to Spoilers. see it. <laughs> I think the statute of limitations on that one is done. But then I think, I then I think I sort of put too much pressure on people as a, a fan of a particular text because of my love of particular classic movies. And I literally must be like watching the person, watching the the show for the first time like why do you not why is this not instantly part of your life now and forgetting that a lot of the it still bugs me that you don't love killjoys as much as i do i will get there (laughs) (laughs) but there's certain like texts where i show someone and they don't love it instantaneously if it's like so my sort of classic example of that is is some like it hot i must have seen it hundreds of times Mm. and i adore it for all its failings and all of its its place in history all of the things that surround that it got me interested in so many things because it's part of my my life and my narrative and then I'm expecting someone to have the same reaction to it who saw it that one time (laughs) and I'm like Mm -hmm. I've seen this movie hundreds of times and can talk along with it and then I get someone to watch it for the first time with that sort of like I would love to be able to watch this movie for the first time again um, right. But I guess part of what makes me love this movie is the memories associated it. Watching mm. it with my my mum on a Sunday afternoon, watching it with uh, friends, introducing it to students. That's part of my enjoyment of that is the narrative that surrounds that particular text, not just the thing itself. Well, that's what I think. That's why we get. That's why we get so invested and competitive over fan things is because a lot of our identity is wrapped up in what we're fans of. So we, we just, you know, I talk about my work uniform and displaying, you know, that I'm a fan of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, or I'm a fan of Firefly, or I'm a fan of Buffy, or I'm a fan of X-Files. And, and that becomes part of my identity. And so we display that, whether it's subtle or whether it's, you know, on our Twitter feed or in our conversation, you know, my identity as a science fiction fan was what attracted my husband to me and and vice versa and so it gets really wrapped up in a lot of identity uh and and that identification frames you and makes you who you are and then some of that is because you might have felt that you didn't belong to that particular fandom or you were the girl who liked whatever um and (sighs) 
I think it becomes so much part of my identity because of being made fun of for liking a particular thing, for having a, for being a girl that liked science fiction and knowing about Star Trek, whereas some people would think that was cool and other people would now sort of like shy away from the fact that I had an encyclopedic knowledge of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because we listened to it on every road trip ever in, with my family. It takes on that different role and then I become, I, I take ownership of that in a way now that I didn't when I was younger. Yeah, absolutely. It's And I like being a contradiction. I love going when I go to... Um, fan conventions and materializing in a, a 1950s prom dress outfit uh not fitting in with the other women or men that are there and that is part of you know i will have touches of my fandom so i often wear a, a necklace that says doctor with a little female um symbol on it which is my sort of nod to the fact that the that doctor who is a woman now but also the fact that i am a phd holding woman so people come up to me and go oh, you're a doctor. And I'm like, well, yes, I am a um, doctor, but also uh, this necklace is uh, TARDIS blue and it references the fact that um, the doctor is a woman um, signaled by a Venus symbol, which is, is problematic, which people don't want to hear when they're just asking about your jewellery. Let me tell you about my feelings <laughs> about the Venus symbol. Um, and they're like, I wish I had not asked now. <laughs> but I mean, that's also why... I mean, we, we can get into some real literary theory in terms of death of the author. That's also why when these authors come out with, you know, when Orson Scott, Scott Card turns out to be a massive homophobe, and despite the fact that as a kid, you know, in my early days of reading science fiction, um, I love Orson Scott Card's books. Uh, I loved Ender's Game. I absolutely gobbled up that, that stuff. But then you, you find that he's a massive homophobe and you go, well, crap, I am not supporting that anymore. And I, I stopped reading them. Um, you know, same thing with she, you know, she who shall not be named coming out as transphobe. And, you know, because as fans, we identify with those texts. We are invested in them emotionally and personally and they're part of our identity. And to have that, that base at the base of that archontic text, uh, actually they start, you know, to have the original author start pulling bricks out and go, oh no, part of, you know, you've, you've built your identity on this, but I hate your identity. Yeah. Uh, it's so traumatizing. But then there's interesting discussions about the separate, separation between the author and the text and yeah. whether you can look at those without connecting it back to the original author which I if think you that's think a about personal it, thing yeah there's a personal thing but then what we're doing what I'm doing with this women make science fiction project is is almost the opposite that it, yeah. of that is recognizing um women's creative responses women's um inclusion and um position within this particular genre it, i mean it's a complex question we're not going to be able to answer things perfectly because on one hand the text should be able to speak for itself and you should be able to enjoy something especially 
with Harry Potter, it, it is such a foundational text for an entire generation because of the way it's written. And it is a well-written, well-considered mm -hmm. text. Yes, there are problems with it as there is with everything. And yeah, I could pick it apart. But for me, that was, that came out while I was later high school and college and I read the books as they came out and, and that was part of the identity of, of sort of millennials. It is part of that identity um, and that difficulty of, of who created that particular text and what role they hold within that yep. fandom. And that's where, as well, I think the, the um, fan fiction is really interesting as well because it, it, it it doesn't rely on author saying yes this is part of the of the canon now this is mm -hmm. part of the, the the story and it's the difference between say a star wars fan fiction um which is part of the fan story world but not necessarily part of the official universe and then how potentially stories and ideas that have emerged from that then become part of the main narrative that's why i find defiance when we were watching that so interesting mm. is that things that happened in the um online game world could affect potentially the narrative mm. of the series whereas actually often within fan fiction it doesn't have that impact upon the original text upon that but it does have that impact upon the fans can i just say how much i hate the notion that something has to all that that um, a mega text has to all work and and fit together within and one story world universe because a it's not possible and b it's really limiting and annoying um so this whole notion that oh uh disney has now wiped out parts of the star wars universe you know the parts of the novelizations are now uh, not canonical anymore and we're gonna restart and all that I'm like oh my god stop with that uh, let's just go okay we're gonna go off in this direction again and I loved what despite all the problems with J.J. Abrams redoing the Star Trek films I loved what he did with the first one which is just to say I'm just gonna go back and give you a vague reason for doing things differently <laughs> the different timelines and then mm -hmm. that sort of that's what I liked about Discovery, which other people really didn't like about Discovery, is those shifting timelines mm -hmm. and mirror universes. I love it. And exploring worlds where all the rules are different and all of mm -hmm. those rules that make it less accessible, perhaps, to a new audience are stripped away. You don't yep. have to know the history of these particular characters of this particular world because you've now gone into an alternative reality. You've gone into a different timeline and so you mm -hmm. sort of like it's almost like a re-entry point that's why with um with the what we're doing what i'm doing on wonderbox uh with the wonder cosms um is to say okay so each r cosm which is a story world universe uh has spirals and each one of those can spiral out and go in different directions and it's very fractal uh where you you can just go off in your own direction great um and it's open to that and i think that's what fan fiction does is just goes okay uh new story world we're opening a door a portal here and and going off in a different direction which is um you know we get so obsessed with uh i, I keep picturing that scene in um endgame where uh tilda swinton as the very problematic whitewashed monk uh draws the timeline and then you know it forks off here and it goes in this direction and we've got to make sure that we all get it back to this point and captain america has to go back and replace everything so heaven forbid we split off in a different direction and i'm like 
but if we've seen, you know, from Doctor Strange that, that all of the millions of possibilities exist, we know it forks off in that direction. In some particular universe, it all works out fine. So let's just watch that universe, which is what we do in these stories. Um, but all the rest of those forks are also legitimate. And I think being able to explore them is, is really fun. I'm going to round us up there. Um, thank you very much uh, for joining us, Katie. I hope that has not terrified you and that you will be fine for the rest of the day. Um, we talk a so lot. We talk a lot. Oh, um, I loved it. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Can no, I absolutely. Of course you can. You guys are amazing. Thank I love you. listening to you. I love like that I get to like follow you on Twitter and Aww. know you folks. And thank you so much. This was so lovely. I really appreciate cool. it. Two PhD badass women, lady folk that are like, yeah, talking to a little newbie. PhD student. Nice. Yeah. So. No, it's excellent. You can come on anytime. <laughs> yeah. Cool. At some point, I would love to talk to you guys about um, Dinosaur Slash. So. Oh. What? I'm just going to do the sign off and then stop the recording. So. Uh, thanks very much for joining us for this Women Make Science Fiction episode. Thanks very much to Katie Hefner for joining us also. And we hope that you'll come back next time where Lyle and I will hopefully not have been replaced with robots. Or men. Or dinosaurs. Or dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs>